Welcome all. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Ryan Snow. I'm the president of the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy student chapter at uh, University of Virginia School of Law. And um, we're thrilled you're all, all here, um, especially we know we have some guests from, from Main Grounds um, and, and from the Miller Center, um, who were uh, Mr. Eggleston recorded yesterday at uh, an American um, Forum episode um, just, down, just down the hill. Um, so we thank them for, for helping us host Mr. Eggleston. I would just like to say I'm very, very excited to introduce um, Neil, Eggle Neil Eggleston. He's a partner at Kirkland & Ellis and uh, former White House counsel for uh, President Barack Obama. Thank you very much for joining me welcoming. So uh, thanks to everybody. My gosh, there's a great crowd. So I really feel like President Trump. What a great crowd you all, you all are. I gotta, this is the largest crowd that's ever been in this room, I'm sure. Uh, but now I know why, because when I walked in here, I saw that the, there was the picture of uh, President Obama. Uh, so sorry to do a bait and switch on who the speaker would be. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm happy to be here. So just a few, uh, few little things, which is I was at the Miller Center yesterday and actually filmed. I, I've, not, I've done very little TV, actually, but I filmed something with Doug Blackman, who does something called American Forum. And as he was sort of getting rolling, I was sort of too nervous to pay much attention, but I could, because it was the preamble before he was going to start asking me questions. But I sort of had to, you know, sort of one part of my brain thought about all the fantastic programs they're doing there. And I just urge all of you to sort of monitor what's happening there because they have wonderful people come in and they've got some really good stuff. And I think sometimes there's probably not as much cross current as there ought to be. So I just urge all of you to, uh, as you go through, look, I know how busy you are, uh, and we'll get busier as the semester goes on, but uh, if you have a chance to do some of that, that that's a really great, uh, great opportunity. So I'm going to talk today about the role of the White House Counsel, in particularly in the rule of law. Um, I have some fairly strong things to say about that uh, subject, given where we are and given who the current president is. I thought I'd just give a little bit of my biography. Um, not to pump myself up, really, but because I'm not going to talk that long before I'm going to open it to questions. And it occurred to me that you may have questions about sort of other things. And so um, I, I thought I'd give you a little bit about uh, sort of my background, which is I went to law school, obviously, uh, clerked on the Third Circuit, then clerked for Chief Justice. The Chief Justice, which was two Chief Justices ago, maybe three, was Warren Berger. I then went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, where I was for most of the 80s, actually, <coughs> as a trial attorney, largely and then uh, ended up a chief appellate attorney. So I argued in front of the Second Circuit all the time, which was really fun. It's the, I think it's really the purest form of lawyering is to do an appellate argument in front of three judges. And you can have notes if you want it, but it's not really going to matter because you're not going to have a chance to look at them. And so it's really just you and your brain and the judges. It's really, it was a fantastic experience. I went into private practice. I then uh, went to the Clinton administration in the counsel's office. I was not the counsel, but I was in the counsel's office during the Clinton administration, and I'll make some reference. That was sort of formative to me in some ways because it taught me a lot about the counsel's office, and it also taught me a lot about the White House under siege, which is in some ways what uh, President Trump is now seeing uh, in his White House. I left the White House but was then brought back as an outside lawyer to represent the uh, uh, office of the president in the Monica Lewinsky privilege litigation. So to extend you guys have read in Ray Lindsay uh, in your classes, which was the governmental attorney client privilege case. Uh, uh, Lindsay being Bruce Lindsay, one of the lawyers for the uh, president. Um, I argued that that was my case. I lost um, two to one. Um, uh, but I won uh, in Ray Espy, which is another significant presidential communications case. And some of you may have read that in, in uh, some of your cases. 
uh, when that was over, I went by, back to private practice. And then, uh, well, I forgot, actually, I did the Iran-Contra investigation, deputy chief counsel for Congress. So I, I was also worked for that branch uh, for a year. We always, uh, I sort of laugh these days in light of Benghazi. The, the major events that gave rise to the Iran-Contra investigation took place around Thanksgiving. It sort of blew up around Thanksgiving of 1986. Committee was appointed. We started work in January of 87. We held hearings that were televised nationally through May, June, and July, and finished early August. And our final report was out before Thanksgiving. And so we did the entire matter from uh, you know, my entrance interview uh, through publication of the final report in less than a year. And that's really the way our leaders wanted to do. I look at places, investigations like Benghazi, significantly less complicated, frankly, and it took significantly longer. But uh, I think that was because they had a different agenda than getting to the bottom of what the truth was. Um, anyway, that's so, so then I, uh, I did not know President uh, Obama before he interviewed me for the job. Um, he interviewed me, and then a month or so later offered me the job, and I, I started in the spring of, uh, of 2014 and then served uh, through the end. I was in the White House the morning of the inauguration. Uh, sort of had to get through the crowds lined up for the parades and all that. We learned that at 11.59, the Secret Service was going to go through the building and make sure that anybody still there was out. And so I wanted to make sure that I was out before I got booted out. And, uh, and um, uh, as I say, I was. Um, so anyway, that's, that was really my last day at work. I um, am now back at Kirkland & Ellis, but I decided that I couldn't go from 100 miles an hour to zero. And so I decided to teach a class at Harvard Law School on presidential power. So that started, my first class was the Thursday, inauguration was on a Friday, the next Thursday was my first class. And my last class was the Thursday before I started back at uh, Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, uh, you know, arguably not great timing, but, um, but that's when the classes started, and so that's when I had to start. It was enormously fun, um, and I'm very sympathetic now of law professors. It was significantly harder than I thought it was gonna be. It was a lot more work than I thought it was gonna be. It was a two-hour seminar, but you know, it's sort of oddly easier to stand up in a lecture like this than to think through a seminar and how you're gonna design it and how you're gonna work lines of discussion, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I worked really hard at it. Um, I designed the curriculum for that class uh, really before the election. I knew whoever got elected, and I, we all assumed it would be Secretary Clinton, obviously, but whoever got elected, the council's office would be quite busy because we were gonna be so involved in the transition both documents and sort of offloading and sort of the mechanics of that, the, the council's always had a heavy role in. So I designed the curriculum uh, before the election. And uh, then as soon as the class started, as you might guess, since it was a course in presidential power, the uh, curriculum changed every single week. Uh, we did two sessions on the travel ban. Uh, I know there was a period of time when the White House said it's not a travel ban until President Trump tweeted it is a travel ban. Uh, which seemed to happen to these poor communications people over and over and over again. Uh, we did a session on sanctuary cities, which, which is, had a little bit of litigation at the time we did it, but has gotten to be a much hotter issue, I think, now. Uh, I had someone who'd worked on my ethics team come in and, and uh, do a session on ethics in the White House, emoluments clause. She talked a fair amount about Carl Icahn, uh, who had been appointed as a sort of a regulatory uh, person with an official title, and somehow the White House determined that no ethics rules applied to him, even though his principal job was trying to get rid of this ethanol rule that was harming one of his uh, uh, refineries um, that otherwise had to purchase uh, ethanol. 
they, uh, the White House rebuffed sort of any attempts to do anything about that until the New Yorker came out with a long story about it. And within about a day, um, the White House announced he'd been fired and he announced he'd resigned. So we'll, uh, who knows how that sort of worked out. If you haven't had a chance to read that New Yorker piece, and as I know, uh, law students are kind of busy, I really recommend it to you because it's a fascinating description of how that uh, whole process uh, works. <laughs> Let me just talk a little bit about the job itself sort of what I miss and what I don't miss about having been in the White House. Uh, the thing I really don't miss at all, um, and this is from the bottom of my heart, is the craziness of Congress. Uh, they, uh, I was there for about a year when there was a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, and then obviously in the midterms, uh, the, we lost uh, the Senate as well. And I swear to God, those people uh, just couldn't do anything. And we'll see whether they can do anything now. Uh, who knows, the, the health care uh, bill is sort of back up for the, as somebody said on one of the news shows this morning, seemingly the 249th time. Uh, I personally hope that it has the same lack of success as the last 248 times. Um, but I really laughed when the, the um, repeal act made it through the House of Representatives, which mind you had voted to repeal it some dozens and dozens and dozens of times before that. And the president had a big party on the, in the Rose Garden with a jazz band and refreshments and film and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, somebody's got to remind him that getting a bill through one, part, you know, one house of Congress is not yet a bill. Uh, there is a second half to it. And it was a little early for the celebration. I'm hoping that's the only celebration they get. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see. Hope that the, the Republican senators held firm last time will continue uh, to, hold, to hold firm now as well. Um, what do I miss? Um, so what I, in some ways, my first thing is um, the crushing hours. Uh, it, it was seven days a week, 365 days a year, uh, Sunday being no lighter than Saturday or, or Wednesday or any other day. Um, but I never once, the whole time I was there, ever had the thought to me in my head that I wish I were somewhere else. Um, I wish I were playing golf, or I wish I were playing tennis, or I wish I was doing something else. I knew I had a shelf life, that whatever else happened, uh, I was going to be out of a job at noon on January 20th, and I was working for the American people, as was the president, and there was, I never once thought to myself, oh my god, I'm getting tired, I can't do this anymore, because um, that's the only place I really wanted to be. Um, it was liberating to be in the White House, and I think this White House hasn't quite figured this out. Nothing that we did ever was not subject to criticism. Didn't matter what we did. Some significant percentage of reporters and people would criticize what we did. So avoiding criticism was frankly never a goal. You couldn't avoid criticism, and it was never a goal, um, which was oddly liberating. Um, the president used to say, we would periodically come out with, and I'll come back to one of them, we periodically come out with uh, policy statements, and the Republicans didn't like it, and the Democrats didn't like it. And the president was sort of joke. I guess we hit our sweet spot uh, because uh, you know we're right. We're sort of right down the middle, and we usually ultimately got people together sufficiently to get most of what we wanted uh, uh, passed. <coughs> the another part of the job that we didn't pay that much attention to, frankly, was leaks. I know this administration is obsessed with leaks. Leaks are pretty much inevitable. Um, we did not have the kinds of leaks that this administration has. I think it's uh, frankly because we had a more unified effort. We sort of basically had each other's backs. Now, mind you, it was a whole bunch of type A people. Um, 
And anytime you put a bunch of Taipei people together, there's going to be jockeying and elbowing and all that kind of stuff. But it was mostly done sort of in the White House and not through uh, sort of unfortunate leaks about personalities and, and uh, all those kinds of things, which, was, which I appreciated. I know the president appreciated and the chief of staff did as well. Um, but, but to get a little more what I'll miss, so Air Force One, oh my. Um, really cool, really cool. Um, so the president does not need his lawyer to travel with him, right? So I had to invent excuses to go with him so I could go on Air Force One. Because I couldn't be there for three years and never having gone on Air Force One. And so um, I would sort of make arguments why he was giving a, a speech to law enforcement someplace and I really needed to be there. The chief of staff would look at me and say, I don't think so. And I, would, <laughs> and I would say, yeah, but I haven't been on Air Force One yet. He said, oh, I get it. All right, go ahead. You can, you can go. There's no marginal cost for more people on Air Force One. There's, once your seats are full, there's no sort of marginal cost. That was pretty cool. Cooler than Air Force One actually is Marine One. And that's the uh, helicopter that takes the president from the South Lawn out to Andrews Air Force Base. And very few staff can get on there. The president, by the time you have the president, his photographer who went with him everywhere, uh, Secret Service, the military people who would travel with him all the time, and the pilots are only two or three seats left. So that's pretty cool. And uh, so I was able to do that uh, several times with him as well. I really enjoyed that. Um, the uh, president's box at the Kennedy Center. There, there's the bowling alley uh, in the old executive office building, uh, which, was, which was great. Uh, lots of state dinners. I went to so many state dinners that I was a actually able to talk my spouse into letting me take my daughter, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, which was a big, you know, big success with uh, my daughter. It was, that was the Italian state dinner, which was very glittery. Uh, Gwen Stefani uh, sang. She, my daughter spoke to her, and sort of the whole, it was really great. And the other thing that President, you probably read, the President was famous, President Obama was famous for, is he loved parties. So when I was senior enough that I got invited to all these all-night dance parties that he would have, um, with all sorts of people you would recognize, literally recognize if they walked in, sports figures, entertainment figures. And the other thing that struck me, particularly at the last one, which is I think inauguration week, <coughs> I'm not sure we'll ever see the diversity again that we saw in those, and, and nobody knew who they were. It wasn't like the guest list was ever published. It was private, it was paid for by the president himself so that we didn't have to make those kinds of disclosures. So there was no pandering to anybody, but the, the diversity, the racial diversity, the gender diversity was just, I just thought to myself, particularly this was post-election of President uh, Trump, that we will not see that again uh, for some period of time in the White House, and it was really, uh, really, uh, really quite remarkable. Um, so let me, there's not a clock here, is there? Okay, just wanna make sure I leave time for, uh, for questions, and I wanted to see if I could identify a clock. Um, so let me move on to a little more substantive part. I want to talk a little bit about the role of the White House Counsel, at least the way I envision it and the way I think it's supposed to operate, as well as the role of uh, the White House Counsel in the rule of law. I was the principal legal advisor to the President of the United States. I saw him almost every day that he was in town, and as I say, sometimes when he was not in town, when I finagled a ride on Air Force One. Um, but, and we, I was also essentially the general counsel to the executive office of the president, which includes the OMB, uh, NSC, um, and uh, sort of various other components. 
I consulted with the Department of Justice, other agencies in connection with those duties. No executive order, no presidential memorandum, no significant policy decision was made without going through my office. Um, the chief of staff once said to me that he and I were really the only two people that saw everything that went to the president because everything had a legal component and everything had to go through the chief of staff. But as to other people, they would get the issues that related to their function. So domestic policy council, they saw the domestic policy issues. National Security Council saw theirs. National Economic Council saw theirs. But really, it was my office uh, and the chief of staff that, uh, that saw everything. Uh, many of these issues were highly complex and highly technical. And I used that. I was a huge believer in career attorneys and the value that they brought to the process. And I think this is something that the Trump administration really has not paid enough attention to. In my view, and I'm going to come back to this in a bit, but in my view, the first travel ban, second travel ban is the Supreme Court. That's a closer case, I think, that, that the administration should still lose, but it's a definitely a closer case. The first travel ban essentially had no chance of success. And it had no chance of success, I believe, because a bunch of ideologues in the White House wrote it without consulting with the immigration lawyers at DHS and at the State Department and the Justice Department. You know, it was reported that the secretary of DHS, then uh, John Kelly, General Kelly, who's now chief of staff, was being briefed on it. And he looked up and saw on the television set the president was signing it. And um, so his office really wasn't brought into it as the, I think the State Department and the Justice Department were done as well, also were not. That the, and the reason that I say this is that the ban included a ban on lawful permanent residence. Well, there was no chance a court was going to sustain a ban on lawful permanent residence coming back into this country. It was never going to happen. And those of you who may have followed the case or read it uh, in connection with your, um, your classes last spring, that was really the ground in which the Ninth Circuit said, we're, we're striking this down. This, this, the, the prohibition on lawful permanent residence is unlawful. It's not close. And we are not going to redline and figure out what else in the order is good or not good. You, Justice Department or administration, should go back, rewrite this, take it out, come up with a justification for it, and then come back to us. And largely, if you remember, that's what the administration did. It did not appeal to the Supreme Court the denial of the first travel ban. It did go back and rewrote it. It took out the reference to lawful permanent residence. But the reason I raise this is if they had brought in anybody who had any knowledge of the substantive issues, this would not have happened. Because those people would have said, nope, you, you, you can't do that as to lawful permanent residence. They are not citizens, but they are this close to being citizens. And we treat them as citizens in this country. And you can't keep them out, keep them from coming back. But that failure process, I think, really um, uh, really, we've seen over and over again in this, uh, in this White House. I'm going to come back to a few of those uh, in a second. Um, another part of my job was providing legal advice and coordination to the National Security Council. Fortunately for the world, I had terrific deputies who had um, spent a lot of their career doing that kind of stuff, which I hadn't. Um, I used to say to them, as they would explain the way you think about use of force to me, I finally said to him one day, you know, this is like physics to me, which is, I don't really get this at all. And so every time they explained it to me, I got a little bit more and a little bit more. And within six months or so, I actually understood how you think about all these various issues. Domestic law, statutory, constitutional, international law, you know, all those sort of, how do you go through the various different analyses? But when I started, I'd never really done anything like that before. 
and I didn't quite know how to think about it, which was a little alarming because I'd be sitting in the Situation Room and the President would look at me and say, well, what about that? Could we do that? And I would have to, uh, obviously I never gave him an answer I wasn't confident of, and sometimes I had to say, look, I have to consult with my people and get back to you on that. Um, which wasn't always comfortable because frequently, you know, the guy didn't have a lot of time to make decisions more than once, and he kind of wanted to make a decision then, and so if I had to get back to him, that usually meant they couldn't decide. And so that was something I tried to uh, avoid happening. And at least I would learn whatever I thought the likely questions were going to be, even they didn't stay in my head for the next hour so I could get through the uh, situation or meeting, and, and so was basically able to do that. But that was, that was uh, fascinating and a really, really uh, heavily, uh, you know, a heavy learning experience for me that I really enjoyed. It was also important to me that uh, we be transparent in those decisions. Um, and I'll give an example. I was heavily involved in something called the AUMF. AUMF st stands for Authorization for Use of Military Force, and that's the statutory authorization for use of military force that we determined I recommended the president that we determined apply to the fight against ISIS or ISIL, however, you know, sort of you want to, whichever acronym you want to use. Um, we were quite criticized for that. We were using the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs that applied to Afghanistan and Iraq, and there was a lot of argument that came back that that was not appropriate, and we were not reading those statutes well. Much of that criticism, frankly, came from Democrats who are friends on the Hill, Tim Kaine, uh, Senator Coons, and others. Um, but we were completely transparent about what we were doing. They were able to push back. They were able to make their arguments about how we were not interpreting it appropriately. But Congress ultimately, as we all know, uh, sort of appropriated billions of dollars to fight that war. Uh, courts uh, basically adopted our position and thought it was reasonable in connection with various uh, sort of different challenges that had taken place. Um, and I think that that was partially successful because we were transparent. We were completely forthright about the way we were thinking about it. I knew, I sort of led this effort, I knew that there were going to be people in Congress who were going to be pretty violently opposed to it. But that's, as I say, that's okay. Um, and, uh, but we were transparent and we were able to uh, ultimately uh, you know, sort of keep going. The, the, um, I, you know, I really uh, contrast that to, and this is a small example, but I contrast that to what happened uh, in the spring when the president, President Trump, sent uh, missiles to bomb an airfield in Syria following the use of uh, chemical weapons by Syria. Um, look, it, it was probably the action for which he's gotten the most compliments by the press, if you think about it. People, you know, everybody in the press likes action. Essentially, you figure out they like action. So as long as you do something, the press is usually particularly if they use their bombs and weapons, the press really loves that. So they really congratulate on that. What disturbed me about it is that there was never a discussion about the legal authority for doing it. There was no discussion of what the domestic uh, authority is. It's, it has to be Article 2 because there's no AUMF that could apply to applying force against a sovereign nation, uh, uh, Syria. So it had to be Article 2 of the Constitution. But um, but that also has some limitations, national interest and the like. But, they, but the international law issues are particularly difficult. And I just thought that the, the White House should have explained their legal rationale for why this was appropriate. Why do I think that? I think that because I think putting America first is leading in the world. And if we are transparent, and if we don't hold ourselves to a standard and explain what we're doing, we can't really expect other countries to do it. 
And, and so I think we have an obligation to be clear what it is we're doing, why we're doing, what we think the legal authority is, and only if we do it, we're, we're the tip of the spear on this, and, all, and if we don't do it, the rest of the, of the world won't do it. And I think it's in our national interest to lead on that. And I actually think, I mean, I'm saying this the day after uh, President Trump spoke at the UN, but I think our national interest includes a national interest in leading the rest of the world, and we can't really lead unless we also act with transparency and lawfulness. Look, w w if, if I'd been there, would I have agreed that it was an appropriate use of force? Maybe, but I've never heard what their theory is, and so I don't actually know whether it's appropriate or not, and I think they had an obligation to do that. Just quickly on a couple other issues I want to talk about. We uh, vetted uh, people to work in the White House and in senior uh, positions in the administration, and we did it before they got announced. We did it before they were nominated. That seems to have been a pattern that has fallen by the wayside. Uh, I'll tell you, if I had been leading a vetting operation and had as many people who had to withdraw because of, or, or you know, withdraw from consideration or actually withdraw their nominations because of ethical issues and conflicts and the like, the president would have had my head. He would have said, what are you doing over there? We don't make these kinds of mistakes, and we certainly don't make them repeatedly. And, um, uh, and <coughs> the response we're periodically hearing is, well, you know, they passed a security clearance. Why isn't that enough? Well, it wasn't enough for us. The, the ability to pass a security clearance did not mean that you had the character and were someone worthy of the honor of working in the White House or working in a, in a senior executive position, not for yourself, but on behalf of the American people. And we were very careful about that. And there were some really terrific people, and it was my office who did the interview process. You can't, I'm not going to tell you the questions we asked, but you can probably figure it out. But, but the number of people who had done things in their past and came in and told us about them and thought they would be considered for a government job was truly shocking to me. It used, I used to think to myself, why didn't they self-select themselves out of this? Because they had to know with that in their past, uh, we were never going to let them uh, get into the administration. Among other things, obviously the press loves revelations of infidelities, and, and I mean that in a broad sense, not just, you know, uh, just a sexual sense, but sort of that scandal in the past, and, and, um, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we really wanted to avoid as much as we could. Another issue that I paid a lot of attention to, which has gotten to be pretty prominent lately, is policing contacts between the Department of Justice, between the White House and the Department of Justice and the FBI and the other investigative agencies. This was an absolute bedrock principle by us. We didn't do that. We didn't ever do it. Um, uh, this Doug Bannon yesterday uh, said to me at the Miller Center program, well, Neil, that's not in the Constitution. Why, why is that a problem? Um, and he said, do you have some separation of powers theory that, that would get in the way? I said, it's not a separation of powers theory. It is a respect for institutions of government theory, which is that if people think that institutions such as the FBI can be used for the personal benefit of the president or other people in the administration, the confidence in that process will diminish significantly. The, the awesome power of the FBI to investigate and the Department of Justice to prosecute has got to be made on a nonpartisan, 
basis and not because it's uh, being used to advance some personal view or political view. And I think if the American people think that, the, that the, those institutions are being misused, that that will be a serious hit to our democracy and a serious hit to those institutions. And I was tenacious about this. And I mentioned yesterday, I think, to Doug that various, various times uh, cabinet secretaries would come to me and say, Neil, I get it. We have a no-contacts policy. You know, you're right on that. But really, we need to make an exception for this. It's a big policy issue. It's not just a criminal issue. It's a big policy issue. And I would just say, no. Uh, you'll never come to me unless it's a policy issue. And if I agree that that's an exception, I've wiped out the rule. Because you will always explain to me why some particular criminal matter is, has a huge international implication or a huge domestic implication or something. And, and this is not a you know, sort of a, a weighing process. This is just something that we would stay out of. Um, and, and we really had no role in any criminal investigations. Uh, we um, never asked that a criminal prosecution be brought against anybody, and we never asked that one not be brought. And the notion that this president would ask the FBI director, Mr. Comey, to stop the investigation of Flynn and that, and that, that would never have happened in uh, our administration. The president knew perfectly well that that was completely inappropriate. And he, it never would have occurred to him even to come to me and ask whether he could do it, because he knew that that would be crossing a line that, that really should not, uh, should not, uh, really should not happen. You know, Steve Bannon in his 60 Minutes interview, this was, I thought this was interesting. I'm obviously not a big Steve Bannon fan. But he said he thought that firing uh, Director Comey was probably the worst uh, mistake in modern political history. So we'll see whether that turns out to be true. It's certainly seeming like it's turning out to be true. Um, I, I, um, so I know Bob Mueller a little bit. I don't know him really well, most of. Um, so, but, but he's a lawyer in town. I've, I've really known him on and off for a long period of time. And what I've always said about Bob is if you uh, have done something wrong, you do not want him to be your prosecutor. Uh, if you have not done something wrong and you want somebody to come to that conclusion, you do want him to be your prosecutor. So I was a huge critic of the independent counsel statute that existed until sort of the mid-90s because it was a little bit set up so the independent counsels had a target and they were judged successful if they got their target, if they were able to indict their cabinet secretary. That was success. And if they couldn't indict the cabinet secretary, that was sort of deemed failure. And I think it was inherent in the statute in some ways. Bob Mueller is not going to do that, in my view. If he finds something, he'll indict uh, or seek an indictment. And if he doesn't, he'll walk away. And people criticize him for walking away when he should have indicted somebody. He's a big guy, and he'll just stand up and take the criticism. And I think that's exactly, if I were a, you know, at some level, if I were under investigation, hopefully I would never do anything wrong. But that's the kind of prosecutor uh, I would really like. But the, if you think about that, the common thread that I have in all this is that I wanted to make sure that there were no self-inflicted wounds at the White House. I wanted to make sure that we were in a situation where the policy people could do their policy work. And I'd been through the Clinton uh, era where, starting with uh, the travel office, which I think happened the first summer after he was inaugurated. And really, his investigations lasted throughout his administration and then because on his last day, the last morning, he pardoned Mark Rich, 
they actually extended beyond his uh, his uh, last uh, days in office, and it it made the White House significantly less efficient because it spent so much energy and so much time responding to investigations that the ability look he did some fantastic stuff. I really admire him as a president. But, but the effectiveness level was impaired because so much time and attention and energy had to be put into responding to the various different investigations. And I made it my goal to, to keep that from happening and make sure that we stood far enough away from the line that there couldn't even be an investigation into what we did. And, and sometimes people got mad at me for that. I'm being too conservative. How could you do that? That's, and I used to say, Look, there is nothing you're going to get from what you just proposed to me that's worth having um, the Office of Special Counsel or some select committee on the Hill do an investigation of it. You, you are, nothing you just told me is worth the blowback that's going to happen if we subject ourselves to, in, uh, to some sort of investigation. And I'm, the President uh, gave me a lot of credit for this publicly, actually, which is it's been a long time since an administration in the last several years has not had a big scandal. Uh, he's given me credit for it, for it, um, which I appreciate. Uh, but mostly, he gets the credit for it because of the tone that he set, and and I knew, and essentially everybody in the building knew that he would have my back. So if anybody wanted to go to him and say Eggleston's being too conservative on this issue, everybody knew that he would say no, he's not. And as a result, nobody went to him, and and I was able because of his backing and the backing of the chief of staff, I think I was able to to uh, establish some pretty tight lines. And I'm pretty proud of the way. That worked out. This White House, in some, I just don't, um, you know, they're just thinking about this different. Um, if, if you think about it, whenever there's a couple days of calmness, some tweet shows up or some speech is given. So we're here in Charlottesville. You know, the first thing he said about Charlottesville, you will all remember the chronology better than I do, was not great, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't until, you know, and he read off the teleprompter and the press always says he does such a great job when he can actually read a speech off our teleprompter. I, it's not clear to me that's the way we ought to judge presidents, but okay. But then a couple days later, he gave his press conference, and you could tell that he was pissed that he'd had to read that thing off the, tel off the teleprompter, and so he went nuts. And then uh, he tried to moderate it a couple days later, and then I, sort of a week or so ago, I forgot where it is. Again, you guys are probably better in the chronology. He was back to it's all equivalent and, and there are bad people who were, you know, sort of protesting the white supremacists and the, and the Nazis who uh, marched through here. Um, that's a self-inflicted wound. And we just see those over and over again. As I mentioned, the firing of direct Director Comey, as Bannon said, possibly the dumbest political move of all time. Um, the first travel ban, as I said, completely self-inflicted wound. I blame the lawyers significantly for that. Um, and then the other one that's always struck me, although people don't think about this as much, is the president's tweet. And it must have been just a slow news day uh, or something was happening on Fox News. I don't really know. But the day he woke up and decided to tweet that President Obama had, ta had tapped his phones in the Trump Tower. Like, what makes a guy get up in the morning and say, I think I'll tell a blatant, bald-faced lie to the American people today, right? Particularly... There's a sense on him in which he's just observing his administration. In 10 minutes, he would get, could get the answer to that question. The, national, the, director of uh, the, the NASA director works for him. The, you know, the Secretary of Defense works for him. The Director of Central Intelligence works for him. I think uh, Coates as DNI had been confirmed by then. 
the uh, attorney general works for him, he could make a call to any of those people and say, hey, was there tapping on my phone? And he'd get the answer. And in 10 minutes, he would have gotten the answer, which is no. And remarkably to me, it took until about a month or so ago before the Department of Justice finally officially uh, told Congress in response to a letter that, in fact, Trump's phones had not been tapped uh, in, um, in uh, Trump Tower. And, you know, uh, that's actually sort of disturbing in and of itself because it took them 20 minutes before they figured it out back at the time of the controversy, but they waited until there were 10 more controversies and people had sort of forgotten about that one in order to correct the record. And as a result, I saw it, but probably a lot of people that really didn't see that the Department of Justice has announced that what the president said was untrue. And, and, um, and as a result, we just have a series of crises from this president, and it's got to be frustrating to people who work there. It was frustrating to me in the Clinton administration. I really went there to do policy, and shortly after I got there, the sort of the investigation started. It was frustrating to me that, that we were diverted from various uh, different policy initiatives, and I think that there must be people there who had hoped to do uh, policy initiatives and just were sort of frustrated now. What time is it? I just, I'm sorry to do this to you. I just don't want to, what's that? Okay, so I'm going to go a few more minutes if that's okay, and then open it up uh, for questions. I, I want to um, talk a little bit more about the rule of law in our society and how important that is to me and how important I think it should be to the operation of the White House Council. Um, I mentioned the first travel ban, and I want to just talk about that a little bit more because I think I'm going to give a couple of, of examples of where I think that bad lawyering has really hurt the administration. Um, the first travel ban was signed within a couple of days of the inauguration. And if you're a lawyer, you would have thought to yourself, what is the record to support this decision? The record that was in existence as of the time it was signed was a whole series of anti-Muslim statements by the president during the course of the campaign and going back for a couple of years. Um, which he then doubled down on, I think, uh, a, a little bit uh, after he became president. But there really was no record at that time of need for the travel ban. They had done nothing to establish that the travel ban had some, was responding to a national security interest, that it was tailored to the national security interest, the whole kind of things that you learn about in your con law classes and the like about narrowly, narrowly ta tailored interests and all that kind of stuff. They had done nothing, and so what they left the president with essentially is a record of animus against uh, uh, Muslims without any counter, uh, sort of counter uh, narrative or a counter record. I think that's another reason that the first travel ban was gonna fail. I think they did better in the second one. I think, as I say, the second one's a little closer case. I think the travel ban should still be struck down, uh, but I think it's uh, a little closer. But they paid more attention because, as I say, I think others then got involved in it to developing a record of, I think the record's insufficient, but at least trying to develop a record that there was some, that it was responding to a national security need in some some very so somewhat uh, uh, tailored way, um, and just sort of a footnote uh, to that, um, I was so surprised after the Supreme Court issued its order, um, and I think it was misreported. Actually, I think the order was uh, a blow to the Trump administration, not affirming the Trump administration, but the order essentially putting a little more nuance on who could be kept out and who couldn't be kept out. And we talked about this actually in my, in my class, which is there's a serious standing issue if somebody is, you know, in, you know, whatever, one of the countries has no connection to the United States, um, 
has no relation to anybody here but, but wants to come over, it's not that the, the president ought to be able to keep that person out, but for the judicial process, you sort of think a little bit to yourself, well, how does that person have standing to get into court? And I really re thought that this order was about more about standing, which is who could complain about this? And so the Justice Department. So after this, I think that was largely a loss. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. I, you know, I would then tailor, I'd pull back, I'd get some wins, I would show that I'm not crazy about this kind of stuff. And then the first thing they do is they go back to court and they, or they, they go back to court, they go back to their drawing board and they decide that grandparents are not close to their grandchildren. And I thought to myself, does anybody have a brain? Like, wouldn't you want to win? And, and I mentioned this uh, at the Miller Center yesterday. You know, most of the Supreme Court justices uh, uh, are in their 70s and 80s. They mostly have grandchildren and not one of them is going to want to go home and tell their spouse, you're not actually close to your grandchild, right? I mean, that wasn't going to happen. And the notion the Supreme Court w was going to take that position was just idiocy. And I would have thought that lawyers would have thought to themselves, let's get a win and let's fight where we care, which is you could tell they cared about the refugee issue because they actually think that's an area I think it's wrong because of all the vetting that has to take place. But at least that's an area where you could argue you know, that there's some exposure and some national security implication. But instead, you know, they sort of uh, uh, barreled ahead with it. They lost in the district court. They lost in the Ninth Circuit. Then when they went to the Supreme Court, I don't know if people noticed, they didn't appeal the grandparent issue. They'd lost it, and they decided not to appeal it. That was smart. But who decided they should do it in the first place is really uh, sort of quite beyond me. A similar record problem, from my point of view, um, has to do with, with the transgender ban on transgender people serving in the military. And I think the same thing essentially has happened here. If you recall, the, the Obama administration made a determination that um, essentially anybody who wanted to serve in our military should be allowed to do so. We'd long since uh, gays and lesbians had permitted to do so for a period of time. Uh, women had not been permitted to, to uh, serve in the military, and then they were permitted to serve but not in combat roles, and that was uh, relaxed. Uh, under the Obama administration and, and obviously quite uh, appropriately. Um, and then the Obama administration considered the issues with regard to transgender and, and made determinations about readiness and uh, cost and the various things and determined there would not be any impact. So, so the way the president did this is that he first tweeted that he was going to ban transgenders in the military. And General Mattis's, the Secretary of Defense's first reaction is, well, we don't actually follow orders by tweet. Somebody's going to have to actually send us an order if you want us to pay any attention to this, which weeks later I think they actually did. But by starting with a tweet and without, when we did this, we went to the department, we asked for a study, we wanted background, we wanted information, we wanted data. Is this going to, I mean, readiness is critically important to the country, obviously. So we wanted a record. Is, there, is this going to have an adverse impact on readiness? And what we determined, what the Department of Defense determined, not the White House determined, was that it would not have an impact on uh, readiness. By proceeding with a tweet and then asking the Department of Defense their views, he doesn't have a record that would support a determination of la that an impact on readiness. And I think, I, I need to say Kirkland and Ellis is representing plaintiffs in one of those cases, so I, I need to be uh, fully transparent on this. But I think that all you, the court can really conclude from this is that he has animus against transgender because he doesn't have a military objective that he determined in advance of the policy. And if there's not a military objective, 
I don't see what it could be other than animus against transgenders. I don't think that we ought to be keeping military people, uh, transgender out of the military simply because we have an animus against uh, transgender people. And it's just another example, I think, of sort of lack of process and really lack of, I think, pretty effective lawyering uh, by people uh, in the executive branch. <coughs> the last one I'm going to do, and then I'll wrap up because I don't want to go too long, although I, I uh, love talking about this stuff. Um, uh, and I'm just, this is just a little piece of it, but this is the revocation of DACA. So, so the president sends uh, Attorney General Sessions out to actually announce the revocation. And the big ground was that the, uh, it's, it's not constitutional. It's a violation of separation of powers. It has to be done by Congress. couldn't be done by uh, executive uh, order. Actually, we didn't do it by executive order. We did it by a memorandum from the secretary of DHS. Um, but, uh, and I was not involved in DACA. I was very heavily involved in the next one, which was DAPA, which is the one we lost in the Fifth Circuit and ultimately lost by a tie vote in the Supreme Court. Um, but anyway, that was the big argument that uh, Sessions made. And, um, and so the next morning, because they got so much blowback, the, if you remember, it was referred to Congress. Congress would have six months in order to make a determination about whether to pre proceed legislatively. And then the president tweeted, and if they don't do anything, I'll revisit the issue. And imagine if you're the Department of Justice lawyer who's got to argue this. Your position is that it's not lawful to do this except by statute. And the President of the United States has just said, I'll revisit the issue. If it's unlawful, there is nothing for him to revisit. He can't. He's, his department, there's nothing there. He can't revisit anything if it's actually unlawful. So you can just imagine some judge saying to, uh, to him, you're in the chain of command of the President, right? And your President has he said he has this power. How could you possibly be arguing to me now that this is unconstitutional because your president has taken the position that he does have the power to revisit this. And I just you know, sort of see these things uh, over and over again. And I'm not doing it from a policy, really, so much as, as uh, from a sort of legal uh, application. Um, so just kind of in summary, I guess, um, uh, I am worried that our institutions are in peril. For my first class, um, I had the, uh, my students read Article Two of the Constitution. And uh, I don't know if any of you have just read it from the beginning to the end, but particularly if you take out how uh, the president is elected and how the president is removed from office, there is damn little left in Article Two. It's a lot of very general phrases. And we've developed norms, essentially, I think, largely since Watergate, uh, because we all know how Watergate turned out, uh, about uh, misuse of institutions of government for personal benefit. Um, but there's not actually much there, and so I think we really have to rely on our institutions to sort of come through. We had a few principles, and I think this White House should have the same principles, which is trust is the first and most critical in, uh, sort of uh, factor in the operating of the White House. Uh, the American people have to trust what comes out of the, out of, uh, the White House, and um, if they don't, uh, people forget how much... We're only nine months in, right? I, I was there for the last three years. It was hard to have the president heard in the last couple of years. New campaign going on. People sort of get tired of their presidents. Uh, president Obama, because of President Trump, President-elect Trump's approval ratings went way up at the end and was one of the highest approval ratings of sort of presidents in our modern era by the time he left. And I think it's, he's just going up and up and up, actually, uh, as we keep going uh, forward. But people... People may have disagreed with us, but I think they basically trusted us, so that we were telling the truth, we were saying what we thought we ought to do. 
a lot of people didn't like what we were doing, but we were always honest about what we were doing, I think, and I think that was important. We also, it was important to us that our conduct, as I mentioned, both be ethical and transparent. The transparency of conduct, I thought, was important. Uh, we had a very uh, serious recognition of the importance of our institutions, even when we disagreed with them. You know, I sort of compared, when we lost the DAPA case uh, in the Fifth Circuit, uh, I thought the Fifth Circuit was dead wrong. Uh, the president thought the Fifth Circuit was dead wrong. But, we, but nobody uh, criticized them as so-called judges. Nobody, frankly, even said they did it because they were appointed by Republican presidents. We didn't go there. I would never let us go there because that's disrespect of those institutions. And I have to tell you, when the president talks about so-called judges, they were you know, selected, they are judges pursuant to the same constitution that made him the president of the United States. There is no different constitution for them than there is for him. And they are not so-called judges, they are judges. And, uh, uh, and I think the institution deserves respect even when we disagree with the decisions that they uh, render because it's important to, to the way our uh, process works. If you just think about it, he's, you know, the media is fake news, he's compared the CIA to uh, Nazis, uh, he claims that when the courts rule against them, they're biased. I'm not sure how many uh, institutions are really left that he has not uh, pretty uh, assiduously attacked, I guess except for the Russian government, which seems to have a different, <laughs> maybe that's a respected institution. Uh, as I said, we didn't interfere, interfere with criminal uh, investigations ever. In addition to that, we didn't become involved in other specific matters, uh, contract awards and all that kind of stuff. We stayed completely away from that. We vetted people, and finally, we didn't call people names. We did not make statements without caring whether they were true uh, or not. We ultimately respected the office of the president. We knew that we were temporary occupiers and, uh, and that we were holding it in trust and we wanted to leave it better than we got there and that's what we really tried to do. So anyway, thank you all for letting me talk here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time.